You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Ecclesiastes 8.14 through 9.10. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy for nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God and that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to my heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no worker's thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for this word to us. We pray that we might see Jesus in it. We might see that in reflecting on our own vain lives, our vapor lives, we might fix our eyes on Christ. And we pray that you would do that for us tonight, your people here gathered under your word. We pray for these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan, I'm one of the pastors here. We are very quickly now getting near the end of this eight-week look in this book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, uh, can use one of the ones in front of you or grab one over here on this table. That's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, if you find the very middle of the Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. Flip over to the right, that's Proverbs. One more, you'll find Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter 8 tonight. Well, has anyone ever asked you that if, you know, they, somebody from the future could come and tell you the day at which you were going to die, perhaps even the circumstances which uh, you would be killed or that you would die from, would you take it? Would you want to know? Would you want to know your, your death day? 
I think most of us probably would say no. I'm not sure. There are probably other reasons too, but I think most of us would probably say no is because we don't like to be confronted with the reality that we actually are going to die. Uh, we don't like to think about that day. Well, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 is going to spend some time thinking about a couple of inevitabilities. We've seen him, this old man preacher. He's, he's been up on, the, up on the porch in his rocking chair. He's just rocking back and forth, musing upon the vanity of life, upon the vaporness of life, like how a breath, our life is here and gone and then forgotten. He's reflected that for those living their life as if this life was all that there is to live for under the sun, nothing under the sun can actually then bring some sense of rootedness, satisfying rootedness. There's nothing under the sun, not money, not recognition, not entertainment, not approval, not art, not music, not sex, not nothing. But then he reflected on the one over the sun, the sovereign creator of all things, who has created all things for a time and a season. He orders everything under the sun. And yet, there are some common obstacles, some common obstacles that get in our way of understanding and trusting in God's good sovereignty. So the preacher considered the existence of evil and death and injustice. And while he certainly doesn't come to some hard and fast conclusions for us, about why God allows what he does, his conclusion is actually pretty clear. That we are under the sun and God is not. That God is over the sun and he surely knows what he is doing, so it would do us well to live our lives in humility and also in contentment, to live lives of wisdom and generosity. So now here in chapter 8, he's going to really begin circling back around to many of the same themes that he's already considered in the seven chapters prior to this. He's going he's gonna to take the diamond and turn it and just observe and ponder some new faces that he's, some of the same diamond but seeing some new beauty. And it will be immensely helpful for us to look alongside him as he turns it. But the remainder of this book will be some reiterations of things that we've already spent a lot of time and a lot of energy considering. So that's why we'll get through chapters 8 and almost through the end of chapter 9 tonight. And then we'll wrap up, wait for it, we'll wrap up next week the entirety of the book in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And for those of you who hate that, uh, that we're moving so quickly through these chapters, well, one, we're going to be talking about many of the same things that we've already been talking about next week, but also a word of comfort in two weeks we're going to begin a look through Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. First Timothy, Paul wrote his young protege six chapters uh, worth of instructions to his young church, which will do us well for instructions for us, a young church. There will be much that I'm confident the Lord will teach us and grow us in. That said, we will slow our pace way down on that uh, book, perhaps spending a week on just a couple of verses or a paragraph at a time. But for tonight, we'll think through two major inevitabilities under two headings. In chapter 8, the inevitability of wickedness, and then in chapter 9, the inevitability of death. So verse 1, chapter 8, the inevitability of wickedness. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? 
Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, and who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Okay, this is a tricky passage, but it's a helpful one for us to consider. Basically, we can sum up what we just read as this. Kings or governments can be extremely corrupt. Kings or governments are going to do whatever they want and as a result, cause great injustice in the land. While they seem really important, though, kings and governments, just like everything else in this world, are hevel. They are vapor. They are here and gone. And yet God is sovereign over all of this. The preacher, again, gives us some proverbial wisdom in encouraging his hearers to, unlike in chapter 3, where we considered there's a time for this and a time for that, and perhaps we said it's not altogether useful for us to use that chapter as just kind of a time, or as a way to, like, say, you better pick your battles wisely, right? Know when to speak, know when to not speak. That's not, I think, what was going on there. Perhaps here it is. In times like these, Middle Eastern monarchies, it would be very foolish For if every time the king did something wicked, something that you didn't even like, it would be very foolish of you to cause some big kerfuffle or a brouhaha. I'm not sure the difference or which one's worse. But here's why. The first time you did that would be your last. The king is supreme and what he says goes, even if it is insanely unjust. We've seen this throughout the centuries. Ramses, he gets, he gets a little nervous that there's a growing number of Hebrews around, so he makes them into his slaves. David decides that he really likes the, the way a woman looks, so he takes her, he kills her husband, he ultimately sends the entire country into war, including the deaths of many of his own children. Like Genghis Khan, he gets tired of just hanging around in the Mongolian steppe, so he decides he's going to just conquer the whole world. Henry VIII, he can't have a male son, so he murders and remarries and murders and remarries and murders and remarries, sending England into centuries of religious wars. Now, this isn't a defense for American-style republic or democracies or something that would be unthinkable for these people, the preacher who is writing this. And democracies can be wicked as well. It's just saying that justice and injustice are fickle. Right and wrong, they come and go like the wind on the whims of those who are in power. And that's just the way it is. Even, and even though God is sovereign, as one author writes, the sin of powerful men can block the view, can block the view of a good and sovereign God. Wickedness is inevitable. And not just that a crude or undignified person gets put in charge of a government or something, but that real wickedness, real injustice can come. Wars, oppression, genocide can come at the hands of wicked rulers. And yet, because powerful men can tend toward blocking the view of a good and sovereign God, the preacher nevertheless resists the urge to move into nihilism, to resist him the urge to just lock himself into his bedroom and just never come out again because nothing in this world matters. Despite the inevitability of like large national 
places of power to even perhaps the wicked abuse that perhaps we see on the more day-to-day level of like uh, a, a mean or oppressive manager at work. Despite all of that, the preacher offers three counterintuitive encouragements for us. The first we've already seen in verse 2. Here's a counterintuitive encouragement to us in the face of the inevitability of wickedness. Submit to authority. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Again, the preacher has a high view of God's sovereignty in mind. Perhaps even Solomon's own words of Proverbs 21 where Solomon wrote, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so with Jesus, we can say, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. It is not the responsibility of every Christian to seek to undo every wicked act of those in power. Every meanness of a politician or a king. In fact, Paul and Peter will both go on to say in their own individual letters in the New Testament to not just submit to the king, but to honor the king, honor the emperor. And before you say, yeah, that's all fine and good, but Peter and Paul, they didn't know Trump or they didn't know Obama or something. Well, you're right, they didn't. But they knew Nero, who was murdering Christians. And he's the one that they're saying Christians ought to honor. So however much you may disagree and even detest some of the past or present policies of those in power, God in his sovereignty has appointed these rulers. And to hate the rulers in our hearts is to mistrust or distrust the very purposes of God. Now a caveat, for those of you I can see squirming out there. You're like, yeah, well, that's how like Hitler came to power. A bunch of Lutherans saying that God has appointed these leaders, so we just have to obey them. Well, we live in a republic with constitutional rights and freedoms of assembly and protest. So to voice opposition against wickedness is an entirely acceptable thing for at least an American to do. The Bible isn't mandating blind and drowsy submission and obedience to authority. And if an authority ever commands us to sin, we must resist and agree with Peter and John in Acts 5 where they tell the Sanhedrin, they say, we must obey God and not men. But in the Sherman house, in our household, we don't refer to Obama or we don't refer to Trump. We refer to President Obama and to President Trump. Even just a subtle sense of a word of honor to those who God has put into power. And even if your bumper sticker suggests otherwise with like a not my president bumper sticker, uh, well, he is, whoever the president is. The electoral process and God himself has seen to it. And I say that not in like because I have like a counter bumper sticker of like, get over it, like our guy won or something like that. That's an equally gloating and equally trusting in your guy to be the president for just four years at a time. So when our guy or our our gal loses, we don't despair because God is good and sovereign. But also when our guy or our, our gal wins, we don't trust in these leaders, these politicians, to now make all things right. Because you know what? He or she is a sinful human being. And sinful human beings like to move towards exploitation of people that they have under their power. 
It is God that we trust, not kings and rulers. So whether it is with a friend over a coffee or it is the post that you make on social media, our language as Christians ought to indicate not a distrust, not a despair that things are going to hell in a handbasket, but our language ought to indicate a deep trust in God's purposes. Careful words of honor and love whether we're talking about national leaders or an unreasonably difficult manager at work, Christians do not merely honor and love those who they think are worthy of it. Every human does that. Every human loves someone who they think is worthy of it. Every human speaks words of honor to those whom they think is worthy of it. So even when we're offering criticism, Christians ought to be known for our charitable words of love and honor, even for our enemies. That is supernatural. Okay, so a first surprising prescription from the preacher amid the inevitability of wickedness is to submit to authority. The second is to fear God. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. It's stupid to despair when wicked rulers are in power because their lives are vanity. Their lives are vapor also. They die and are also forgotten. Time and the world moves on, so don't freak out. Then back to 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. It may very well be our temptation to look around the world to see the wickedness and disobedience to God, see seemingly not only a lack of punishment for this kind of evil, but to see perhaps God, look, it looks like God is blessing this kind of evil. It's actually more attractive to live however we'd like. Living life for the self and, and utter selfishness seems to bring more promotion, seems to bring more wealth, even on the surface, more happiness. So fearing God, honoring him, understanding his word as authoritative over my life, caring more about what God thinks of my life than what the culture around me, my coworkers or friends think of me, caring more about what God says for my life than what I want for my life, all of this seems counterintuitive. We look around and it appears that God is either not there, God is asleep, God is blessing evil, or if and when he does act, it seems that he acts much, much too late and so we look around and think, who cares anymore? I'm just going to It is better. Forget it. Like obedience and self-denial aren't worth it. Pleasure, here I come. But the preacher says, verse 12, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Observation and empirical evidence of God's blessing and justice can only get us so far. We are on the backside of the tapestry, the, the underside of the loom, but God will not remain silent in justice forever. In fact, he may be acting in justice right now, even though we don't, even, we don't seem to see it. As Paul describes in Romans 1 of God's wrath being poured out 
in a giving them over to their desires. There, there are two ways that the Bible describes God's wrath being poured out. An active way, where we see him uh, directly pouring out and punishing wickedness. But equally scary, perhaps even more scary, is his passive wrath, his removing of his presence, of individual and societal consciences becoming so seared or so deaf to the things of God that what is right seems wrong and what is wrong seems right. And yet, even among this reality, Christians don't obey God just because we're into like self-inflicted pain or something. I guess I'll obey God because I'm a Christian and I hate pleasure. God is out there to squash any ounce of joy that I might have. No, in fearing God, I trust that God has given me commands to obey for my own joy. Not for pain, but for greater joy. Even if we don't understand or experience obedience to be immediately joy-giving. And so that's why the common phrase... A phrase that I've even used in a pulpit at one point in my life is a false dichotomy and not true. That, that God cares more for your holiness than your happiness. I, I know what I was trying to mean when I said that, that God cares more for my uh, obedience and my holiness than like giving me a, a new car or a house or something. But God absolutely cares for my happiness. And the highest level of joy the highest level of pleasure in this life is found in my obedience to him, in my holiness, through my fearing him and obeying him, even when it doesn't appear to have any immediate payoff. God cares more for my holiness through my happiness, or my happiness through my holiness. The things go together, even when it looks more fun to create my own norms of right and wrong in my life. So even amidst inevitable wickedness, the preacher says, submit to authority. Fear God, even when it doesn't seem to have an immediate payoff. And then lastly, be joyful. Verse 15, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. All people will die. The end of chapter 8 whether they are worshiping God in their heart, whether they are uh, giving and offering acceptable worship, or whether they are not. And I'm going to save the reflection on these two paragraphs of having joy for chapter 9, because the preacher's response to the inevitability of wickedness and the inevitability of death is just the same. Pursue joy in eating and drinking. Like, really, really enjoy the small things and take pleasure in God's everyday gifts to you because of now our second point, that everyone will die. Let's turn our attention to chapter 9 with not just the inevitability of wickedness, but the inevitability of death. Now, let's be careful with these first six verses that Jonathan read earlier from chapter 9. Ecclesiastes is not attempting to describe the afterlife. The preacher is not saying that it is better to be alive on earth than for you to be a believer in Christ, to be found in Christ, and to enjoy paradise forever. Nor is he saying in verse 5 that once you die, that's all there is because they know nothing and have no reward. The preacher here is not 
describing or even musing upon the afterlife. We know that he believes in the afterlife because he's said that there will be justice for the wicked in the end, but it is just the prerogative of God to have given Peter and Paul and Jude and the gospel writers through Jesus, to, and even Isaiah and Ezekiel and others in the Old Testament to describe and for us to think about the afterlife. So if he's not talking about the afterlife, what is he saying? Well, like we've talked about through the book, death is coming for us all. For the wicked and the righteous, in the end, it doesn't matter because everyone's going to die. Like seriously, I'm not trying to be a downer here, but you, look at me, look in my eyes, you will die. This is what he's trying to pound into your head. He's been trying to pound it into your head for now eight and into the ninth chapter. We can try to find all sorts of ways to distract ourselves from this reality. Like we did, like we thought through in chapter two. These are just trying to find a laugh track for our lives of entertainment or some kind of pleasure out there to help us forget the reality that we're going to die. Not just fun and entertaining distractions, but the 1950s English pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, you can be so interested in great theological and intellectual and philosophical problems that you tend to forget that you're going to die. We not only tend to forget that we're going to die, I think especially as Americans, we do everything in our power to not think about it, to never think about it. Whereas the majority of human cultures throughout history have had their family members, whether they be young or old, die in a bedroom in their own home, surrounded by loved ones. Today, as Americans, we do whatever we can to keep ourselves from even the slightest hint of even the smallest discomfort, much less the greatest. I'm not suggesting that the mandate for Christians ought to be that we ought to bring our dying into our bedrooms or something, but it would do us well to think not less about death, but more. Like, have you ever seriously considered, given thought to, perhaps some of us in our personalities are more inclined to this, but have you ever given thought to that perhaps because of the majority of the age of our folks here, that in 40 or 50 or 60 years, Perhaps for some of you in 10 years or in five years or next year or next week, you will likely, not for all of us, but likely the majority of us will be lying in a bed and your blood pressure will begin to lower and lower and your breathing will get very shallow and will get very difficult and then your heart will begin to beat slower and slower, and slower, and it will stop. And the electric activity in your brain, sending signals to the rest of your body, will shut down. And your body, the one that you are, that you are living in right now, your body, not your grandmother's body, not your great aunt, your, some old person that you saw on a, down the street or something, your body, you 23-year-old, your body, will stop working and you will die. That's an uncomfortable reality. If you really think about, my heart is going to slow and stop and I will stop breathing. 
We don't know the day or the hour, which is the point of verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Perhaps you will live to 80. Perhaps you will live comfortably in hospice care and then die in hospice care. Perhaps, though, as we are walking out of here tonight, like a bird in a snare or a fish in a net, gone. We don't know the day. And knowing the stories of friends and family members of many of you in the last even month, in unexpected and tragic deaths, the snare of death could come for us at any moment. And just like once a year, you celebrate your birthday. There is a day of the 365 that is the day of your birth. There is a day of 2018 on the calendar that will be your death day. We don't know it. We don't know which day you will die on. Perhaps it's in 2019. Perhaps it's in 2074. But one of these days on the calendar is your death day. And with every turning of the calendar, every time you reach that day, you are one year closer. And since death is coming for us all, that means that we ought to realize the seriousness of our present life. We've read and considered that it is better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of feasting. It is better to go to a funeral than to a wedding. Because it forces us to consider our own mortality. Weddings are great. They're wonderful. It's fun times, good times. And we ought to, as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, enjoy these times as well. There's a time and a season for that. It is great to enjoy God in marriage and in dancing and in partying. But except for the bride and the groom, uh, a wedding really doesn't have much lasting impact in our lives. Nothing against like Matt and Lindsay who just got married last month. And for many of you who have gotten married, like after like 10 years, all the weddings kind of just blend together, right? You don't forget funerals. They are starkly unique. At a funeral, you begin to consider your own mortality. You perhaps, and I think this is a good thing for us, by the way. Perhaps you don't agree with me. I think it's good to have an open casket, for us to go and consider. I'm not saying you have to if there's an open casket. That weirds you out. You don't have to go down front. It is good to see, reflect, and consider. You will be this way. You will die. Funerals can change the way that we think forever. But now, this life, while we are alive... This is the only time that we have to pursue wisdom. So this is why he says in verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Like dogs were the worst of the worst. I know we all have our puppies, and it's great. And dogs are wonderful in America. Not so when the preacher is writing this. Dogs are the worst, and lions are the most majestic. The lion of Judah, especially for a Jewish person. The lions are the greatest thing in all cre- in creation. So it's like the preacher is saying, better to be like some living beggar who has nothing than to be a dead king. Why? Because the king's time is over. The majestic lion has nothing any longer. He has no more opportunity to seek God and to know him. But for the beggar, there's still a chance. 
Teach us to number our days, Moses says in Psalm 90, that we might get a heart of wisdom. When we consider that we are going to die, that our days are numbered, this causes us to reflect and to pursue wisdom. There's only one life and there's only one death. YOLO was a big thing like five or six years ago, right? You only live once. Everybody's saying YOLO and there's like hashtags and t-shirts and stuff. It's not as big of a deal these days, but as true as YOLO is, YODO is also true. Like you only die once. (laughs) Perhaps we can sum up Hebrews 9.27 as YODO. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. You have one life and you have one death. And after that, that's it. There's one death, which comes judgment. And in this side of life, there is no more remembrance. There is no more life. There is no more opportunity to pursue wisdom, to pursue Christ. And while this book doesn't necessarily have much to say for the afterlife, for the Christian, death is the way to even fuller life. Death is an enemy to be avoided. We should not try to seek out death. It will find us just fine on its own. But death for the Christian isn't something to avoid in fear and to avoid in daily distraction. Jesus died in our place that we might live. And just like with Jesus, for the Christian who is united to him by faith, after death comes resurrection. In 1680, Puritan Thomas Goodwin was lying on his deathbed with a fatal fever. He was 80 years old. And here's what he said. And I can only hope that one day, perhaps when I'm 80, that I might, with expectation of what is to come, I might have the same kind of reflection after a life of persevering faith. He said, with his last words, I am going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. Christ cannot love me better than he does. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. Now I shall ever be with the Lord. The preacher doesn't talk about death so much because he's some morbid nihilist, but because of the exact opposite. For the preacher, it is only with an acknowledgement of our coming death that it is certain that then we can live our lives backwards from that inevitability. Living every single event, every single event, from the wedding, to the funeral, to going to dinner tonight, to the birth of a child, to the death of a child. Every hevel vapor event in our life with the perspective of the end. And in preparing to die, we find that we can now finally live the lives that we have today with the gifts that God has given us with the fullness of joy. And that's what we do here together every Sunday. No, no, let, let you in on a little secret here. This is what we do every Sunday. As we gather together, we prepare to die. We prepare for the inevitability of the ends of our lives. But in doing so, also this being a resurrection day, a Sunday of the Lord's Day, we also do so with the perspective that this is also a day that we gather together to prepare to live. 
We're preparing for our deaths through the life of Christ, but understanding and recognizing the inevitable death at the end of the road. Many of you know Mike Grazak, who is the assistant men's head coach of the men's soccer team at UNM. And many of you know that Mike Grazak is a dead man walking, uh, not because he got some uh, diagnosis from a doctor of some terminal illness, but because the men's soccer team a couple months ago got cut. Mike's going to, at the end of this season, going to have to be looking for a job. And we're going to lose the Grayzacks because they're going to find some other job somewhere and it's going to be terrible when we get there. But rather than this reality that at the end of this season, Mike's season is over, the program is cut, rather than this reality causing Mike to mope around with his team because nothing matters and it's all meaningless, Mike has said that this has been one of the funnest seasons that he's ever had coaching. Why? Because he knows that he's only got a few more months with his guys. And sure, well, he would sure like to have a few more wins and like have this season go out with an awesome bang or something. The results ultimately don't matter for next year. Because there's no team. This season is just about hanging with his guys, going deep with them, and just enjoying them. Enjoying every day that he has with them. And this is Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's all vanity. It's all going to be gone in just a couple of months or a couple of years or a couple of decades. But since you know that, enjoy it. Which is exactly what the preacher's conclusion is as well. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with, your, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. All the days of your dumb, stupid, fleeting life. Just enjoy them. Enjoy them that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds, you to, finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in death, to which you are going. In the everyday, regular gifts of bread and wine that would have accompanied every Jewish meal. Enjoy them. It's like if you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of water today, enjoy it. What a gift. What a gift from God. Don't be afraid to even spend a little bit of money on some white clothes, which are like celebration clothes. Get some oil from your head, for your head. College guys, shampoo your hair. Like, this is what he's saying. Like, <laughs> be presentable. Not just presentable. Get some nice snappy clothes and some clean hair because like, you want to impress someone, but because of the joy that you are experiencing internally, let your external appearance reflect that. Make yourself presentable in joy for this day that God has made and has given to you. If you're married, take joy in your spouse. He or she, what a gift. Not a source of joy your husband or your wife is, but in joy from God, thankful for the gift that God has given you in your husband or in your wife. Whatever God has given you in your house, your clothes, your car, your pets, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your GC, your church, your nice dinners, or even the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, the non-excessive bare necessities that God is currently giving you, perhaps in meager portions, because you don't have a ton of money. A gift, even in your work. Work hard in joy. 
The, the job that God has given you is a gift from him. So work hard, enjoy. These are all gifts from God, the God of every good gift. Stay with me on this for a second. But perhaps if you're struggling and thinking and understanding how you take pleasure in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or even take pleasure in the job that you might hate right now, C.S. Lewis, I think, will help us understand this. He was once musing. He wrote this. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the place. So he's entered a tool shed, and he sees this beam coming across. He's looking at the beam. It's amazing. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. He ceased to see the beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very, very different experiences. In his great book, The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts, great book, The Things of Earth, Joe Rigney writes, John Piper calls this the essential key to unlocking the proper use of the physical world of sensation for spiritual purposes. This whole beam thing is the essential key for you to unlock the proper use of the physical world, of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for spiritual purposes. All of God's creation becomes a beam to be looked, at, looked upon. Not looked at, but looked upon. Or a sound to be heard along. Or a fragrance to be smelled along. Or a flavor to be tasted along. Or a touch to be felt along. All of our senses become partners in perceiving the glory of God through the physical world. The first time, I think, that I really began to understand this was after I read this whole tool shed and beam thing of Lewis about three years ago. That week I had met with a friend for lunch at Al's Big Dipper, a little sandwich shop right over here by the library. Really good. Uh, and me and my buddy were sitting outside on the sidewalk. It was a Friday afternoon or Friday noon-ish. It was 70 degrees. I was eating a delicious turkey and jalapeno sandwich with a bowl of clam chowder. It was wonderful. And the conversation that we were having, we were talking about our kids and our marriages and our jobs. And then this moves along into like uh, adoption, not just adoption with our families, but how we have been adopted into the family of God and justified by God through his son. And just like the conversation was great. And as I'm sitting there, I had this moment. This was like a few days after I had re read this whole along the beam thing. And I was thinking, what a God. What a God to have given us this day, to have given me this clam chowder, to have given me this friend. I was looking along the beam. Lewis writes, I have tried since that moment to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply giving thanks for it. He's not just thankful for the gifts of God, but the sweet air that he experiences on this earth. This sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blows. It is a message. 
We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event. Listen to this. We don't have to think about thanksgiving and praise as separate events. Something done afterwards. But to experience the tiny theophany. Theophany means just God showing himself. To experience the tiny theophany of a turkey sandwich. God showing himself is itself to adore. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary sparkling reflections are like this? What must be the quality of the God to have given me this sandwich? To have given me this sunset? To have given me this friend, this wife, this child, this church. What must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary sparkling reflections are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. What a God. What a God to have created this world with such wonder and beauty and flavor and enjoyment. And while many of us, even right now in this moment, are perhaps really, really struggling with what I'm saying, perhaps really, really struggling to experience much less great, amazing, infinitely increasing joy, any ounce of joy, there is so much sadness in this past week. There is so much depression. There is so much pain, so much sin, so much death. Well, as trite as this may seem, God has shown you his goodness in a sandwich. God has shown you his goodness by giving you this. He did not have to. God has shown you his goodness in giving you a church who cares for you. God has shown you, most of all, his goodness and his care for you by giving you his son who loves you and gave himself for you. Fight for joy. Having joy can sometimes be a very counterintuitive struggle, a real fight, a real conflict. But the way of the cross is counterintuitive. Death bringing life. So fight for joy tonight. Fight to remember God's goodness and faithfulness to you tomorrow as you, do, as you drink a good cup of coffee in the morning. God is so good. He did not have to. But he did. Along the beam, what is the quality of a God who could create a beverage such as this? Incredible. And fight to remember that if he has given us his son, will he not also give us all things for our joy, for our life eternal? Even through wickedness, even through death. You are going to die. It's not one of those things where like, Take a look at the person next to you. Take a look at the person next to you. One of the three of you are going to die. Something like, all of you, we're all dead. You are going to die. And as Lewis writes elsewhere, die before you die. There is no chance thereafter. Die to yourself. Find life in Christ now before you die because there is no chance thereafter. 
But for those of you who have died to yourself and are now alive in Christ by faith in his death, in his life, there are pleasures forevermore along the beam. Go out tonight, look at the sunset, read a good book, watch a football game even. Whatever you're doing with your friends, with your spouse, with your children, what a gift he has given us to even be alive tonight. Along the beam, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's thank him. Our Father, we are floored. We are speechless. What a God. What is the quality of the being to have created a world such as this? Though there is wickedness, though there is injustice, though there is deep sadness and depression and death, God, you are a God of pleasure and you have created us for pleasure and we pray, we pray that we would find more and more and more infinitely increasing pleasure in you, in our obedience to you, in our fear of you, because you are good, because you are great, because you are sovereign. God, help us more and more to deny ourselves. Do not seek to express ourselves more and more as the culture around us tells us to, but to deny ourselves. To seek to love you with our whole heart, and strength, and mind. To seek to love others as we love ourselves, even more than we love ourselves. Lord Jesus, bring us more and more life. We know, we know and believe that there are pleasures forevermore. Help us to even experience this. Help us to not just look at the gifts, to look at the sunbeam, but to look along it. To love you, to worship you, to thank you, and to praise you forever. For you are good. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.